Numbers chapter 12. It's been said on many times, many occasions, that pride is the mother of all sins. In our pride, we grow discontent. We insist that we deserve more. We have merited better rewards and recognition. In our pride, we become hyper-defensive. When anyone lays a charge against our character, or even mildly suggests there is something lacking in our integrity. In our pride, we grasp after positions of power, honor, and fame, in either a spirit of vanity or a competition with others. On tonight's passage, we see pride in the heart of Miriam, the sister of Moses. Her problem is my problem and yours. But also in this text, we see in Moses a remarkable maturity, a man who has grown to become a truly humble man in the Lord. And we see a contrast to pride and humility is this, contentment, the ability to keep silent against attack, and one who does not grasp for power and position. In our text tonight, I believe we receive hope as we are presented with the severity and the kindness of God towards our sin that ultimately points us towards a gracious Savior. Please listen as I read from Numbers chapter 12. Miriam and Aaron began to talk against Moses because of his Cushite wife, for he had married a Cushite Has the Lord spoken only through Moses? they asked. Hasn't he also spoken through us? And the Lord heard this. Now Moses was a very humble man, more humble than anyone else on the face of the earth. At once the Lord said to Moses, Aaron, and Miriam, Come out to the tent of meeting, all three of you. So the three of them came out. Then the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud. He stood at the entrance to the tent and summoned Aaron and Miriam. When both of them stepped forward, he said, Listen to my words. When a prophet of the Lord is among you, I reveal myself to him in visions. I speak to him in dreams. But this is not true of my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak face to face, clearly and not in riddles. He sees the form of God. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? The anger of the Lord burned against them, and he left them. When the cloud lifted from above the tent, there stood Miriam, leprous like snow. Aaron turned toward her and saw that she had leprosy. And he said to Moses, Please, my Lord, Do not hold against us the sin we have so foolishly committed. Do not let her be like a stillborn infant coming from its mother's womb, with its flesh half eaten away. So Moses cried out to the Lord, O God, please heal her. The Lord replied to Moses, If her father had spit in her face, would she not have been in disgrace for seven days? Confine her outside the camp for seven days. After that, she can be brought back. 
So Miriam was confined outside the camp for seven days. And the people did not move on until she was brought back. After that, the people left Hazaroth and encamped in the desert of Paran. This is God's holy word. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the remarkable candidness of your scripture to reveal the flaws of heroes of the faith from bygone eras. We thank you that this offers us hope that sinners like us, too, can come to be forgiven and be reconciled to our gracious Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Bless us as we study this text this evening. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. In C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, one of my favorite children's stories, we're familiar with the story of Edmund, one of the children, who betrays his older brother and sisters, siding with the White Witch of Narnia in exchange for Turkish delight and the prospect of ruling in her steed. In the story, the seeds of treachery are sown early with Edmund's lies by the harsh treatment of his older brother and his growing resentment towards those who tell him what to do. In his pride, Edmund grows blind to the ill treatment of the white witch and fails to see that his older brother simply means him good. Edmund's betrayal will prove costly to his siblings and to the residents of Narnia. Edmund will be rescued in a heroic attempt. Nevertheless, the white witch comes after him, demanding his blood according to the rules of the deep magic that founded Narnia. Every traitor must die. Only the high king of Narnia, Aslan himself, is able to appease the witch's demands, and she renounces her claim on the traitor Edmund. In a remarkable scene in the story, Aslan and Edmund meet privately, and in that brief encounter, Edmund is chastised in such a holy and remarkable way that he comes out an entirely different person. Aslan leads the traitor Edmund to his siblings and exhorts the brother and sisters to not say another word about it, for what is done is done. Edmund is obviously humbled by the loving reception of his family members. And though he had been a traitor, he is received and installed in the battle and proves a valiant warrior against the final war against the forces of evil, even to the point of almost sacrificing his life for the sake of his brother. In our text, we are presented with a proud woman who, in a way betrays her brother, and even more grievously against the Lord. A woman who becomes humbled as her sin is exposed for what it is, and is restored by the gracious intercession of the one she offended. We, like Edmund, and like Miriam, have a deep heart of pride that must be exposed for what it is. And if we are to receive the restorative grace that we call humility, our pride must be slain at the foot of the cross. 
I'd like to examine this passage tonight from three vantage points. Pride, humility, and grace. Our text tonight follows the passage that Pastor White preached on last week, in which God did a remarkable thing, providing millions of quail to feed his hungry people meat to eat out in the wilderness. And God did another remarkable thing by anointing 70 elders of Israel to relieve the burden, the administrative burden that rested upon Moses' shoulders. And so when we come to this passage, it might be said that Moses is at an all-time high in his popularity. He got the people what they wanted. You want meat? I'll talk to God and get that for you. Need leaders? Hey, God and I are like this. I'll get it. Of course, the spirit of Moses is nothing like that. Moses is not a shrewd politician. Rather, he is a man in deep intimacy with Yahweh. Nevertheless, in the eyes of Aaron and Miriam, little brother is getting too big for his britches. And so they decide it's up to them to knock him down a few notches. Now, they have trouble finding a substantive charge to lay against Moses. It's frustrating when you're trying to accuse a truly holy person. So what do you do? You make something up. In somewhat typical feline fashion, Miriam chooses to attack Moses' vulnerability. The new woman in his life, his Cushite wife... And it seems pretty clear to me that this wife is not Moses' first wife by the name of Zipporah, a Midianite. And the silence of scripture would suggest that she had died and that this was a second Moses, uh, a second marriage of Moses. And uh, it seems that, that Moses, in seeking a companion to help him carry the load and the burden of leading Israel, has chosen amongst the foreigners in their midst to be his new wife. She is a Cushite. Perhaps she is amongst the peoples around Egypt who aligned themselves with Israel as they were coming out of the Exodus, or perhaps even joined with Israel in the Exodus to the promised land of Canaan. As a Cushite, she would be black in color or significantly darker than the Jewish people. I believe that her skin color is not the basis of the criticism against her. Rather, it's simply that she is a foreigner, a non-Israelite. And Miriam bringing this charge is a foreshadowing of the nationalistic pride that will afflict the Israelite people for centuries to come. Well, biblically speaking, Moses was not in any violation by marrying this woman. God would forbid that Israel not marry the Canaanites, the wicked people who would be condemned to death in the holy wars. As for the other nations, any God-fearing person who was willing to submit to the rule of Yahweh was fair game for marriage. Well, the wife, being their pretext for criticism in verse 1. And we then learn in verse 2 the real complaint of Miriam and Moses. They are questioning the authority and the honor that has been received to Moses. 
Has not God also spoken through us? Now it appears that Miriam is the ringleader in these attacks. She is mentioned first in verse 1. And is she the one who suffers the chastisement of the Lord later on in the chapter? Aaron, it appears, merely goes along with his very assertive sister. In much the same fashion he did earlier on by abdicating to the desires of the people to build and fashion the golden calf. This would seem to vindicate God's choice of Moses, who is made of sterner stuff than his older brother. Nevertheless, Miriam and Aaron bring a charge against their brother. And this is remarkable when we consider that both of them had honorable positions. Miriam was a well-respected prophetess. Aaron had the chief honor of being the high priest of Israel. And it was his offspring who would carry on the line of the priesthood, not Moses. That was still not good enough. Some people just don't like being second place. I learned a valuable lesson a few years ago when I was serving on a mission project with Campus Crusade for Christ when at the midpoint of the project, the staff leaders would appoint two men and two women to be the student leaders for the remainder of the 10-week project. And another gentleman was picked number one, and I was number two to him. And I had to learn, and this was something good for me, to learn to be in submission to another man as a leader on a project, especially a young man who was younger than I was, learning to be number two. Well, we can find plenty of examples in Scripture of people who don't like being number two. And several of them come in context of sibling rivalries. Think of Cain, who burned by the Lord's rejection of his sacrifice and the honor and acceptance uh, attributed to Abel, turns and murders his own brother. Joseph's brothers despised him because of their father's favoritism, symbolized by the famous coat of many colors. So they sell him for a slave. David arrives on the, great, on the scene of great crisis in Israel, as the armies of the living God are being taunted by the Philistine giant. And David is being taunted by his older brother, Eliab, who disdains his brash younger brother, who is only there to see the battle. Jesus also will suffer opposition and unbelief from the midst of his own family members. We hate it when someone else gets the praise and the recognition that we think is due to us. Why did he get that promotion that I deserved? Why does she always get the recognition? Pride all too often disrupts harmony in families and in households of faith as the vanity of one individual swells to the point of bitterness, not getting his or her just desserts. Such was the case with Saul. In his evil towards David, oppressing him, in opposing him with a jealous eye throughout the remainder of his life. 
in vivid contrast to Saul, is the pure of heart humility of his own son, Jonathan. What's so surprising about the relationship between David and Jonathan is that Jonathan is the next in line to be king. He is a bold warrior. He is the eldest, and he is the one who would easily go on to become king in place of his father. And yet, Jonathan is not filled with ambition for the throne of Israel. It says that after the victory over Goliath, Jonathan attaches himself to David and loved him as his own self. He even places upon him his own clothing and his armor and gives him his sword and shield, symbolizing that he was offering him the throne, that he knew it would belong to David. He even makes a covenant with David and would later acknowledge that David would be king and that Jonathan would be second to him. You see, Jonathan was willing to be number two. Because he was driven not by his own vainglory, but by the glory of God. He didn't need power and honor in order to be happy. Because he found his joy in the strength of the Lord. I'd like next to consider how Moses responds to the assault of his own family members. Now it's likely that as a leader, Moses has heard this kind of thing before. And, and as we'll go on in the, story, in the book of Numbers, he will encounter even more severe threats to his leadership and even mass rebellion. But this one hurts because it's his own sister and brother. Those wounds inflicted nearest to us penetrate the deepest. I sympathize with Moses, as I'm sure you do. Can you just imagine the shock of such a blindsided attack from people who cared about you and that you loved? We can imagine our own reaction. With our pride being stirred up with a temptation to retaliate. To put that person attacking you in his or her place. To shine the spotlight on his or her flaws in retaliation. A nice leak to the press would be in order. Gossip is juicy, you know. We might rub it in by challenging them to a duel of words, duking it out with words and phrases that inflict damage more than swords and spears and arrows. But if we're more sanctified than to resort to retaliation, perhaps we might prefer a defensive stand. At first, we're dumbfounded at the audacity of the charges. We can't even understand them. They don't even make sense. In Moses' case, I'm sure Moses could have made a long list of rational, reasonable arguments explaining why his marriage was legitimate. He could have sparred back against his siblings by taking refuge in the facts that his commissioning was of God, not his. He did not seek it. He didn't even want it. He actually tried to flee from this responsibility. And yet, God had made him the leader of Israel. This was the work of God, not his own. Or perhaps, in such a circumstance, we are wise enough to keep our mouths shut. To neither retaliate against attackers, nor to hunker back in defensiveness... And yet pride might still choose a third way 
self-pity. It feels good to nurse and console ourselves in the pit of self-pity. We stew in our minds, thinking to ourselves, after all I've done for them, after all the sacrifices, what do I need to do to earn her respect? No matter what I do, I just can't seem to please him. Nothing will satisfy those people. Many a pastor, ministry leader, parent, neighbor, community leader has logged in too many hours to count at the mat of self-pity. But in the words of Oswald Chambers, self-pity is of the devil. Moses says nothing. And in the ongoing response, the graciousness of his actions towards his sister, there's absolutely no sign that he takes the plunge into any stew of resentment, bitterness, or self-pity. Rather, we have this commentary in verse 3 that Moses was a meek man more than all other persons on the face of the earth. That's quite a compliment. Now, many critics will, can, will insist that Moses could not have written this. I mean, you can't, you can't boast about your humility, right? I would argue that uh, only a truly humble man in submission to the Lord could write such a thing about himself. However, I also don't object to an alternative view that perhaps Joshua or another man wrote these things as an inspired editorial on what is by and large, if not exclusively, the work of Moses in the Pentateuch. Such additions do not compromise the inerrant and authoritative nature of Scripture because God and His sovereignty ensures that His Word is perfect and complete through the pens of many authors. Nevertheless, Moses is genuinely humble. He is meek. And meek is not weak. It does not mean, mean timid or resigning. It does not mean I'm a doormat, come and walk all over me. It doesn't mean we never defend ourselves or speak up with our convictions. Jesus was a meek man. He spoke up when needed. He acted with great zeal. But in his meekness, he never retaliated because he was not consumed with his own reputation, rather the reputation of his father. Jesus was not self-protective, rather he protected others, the weak and the vulnerable. And Jesus was able to keep silent, even as his enemies prodded him and provoked him to defend himself, and yet he refused. He only spoke to give his adversaries enough ammo to convict him of blasphemy, a charge that they had insufficient evidence to bring against him for a conviction. Jesus was silent before Herod and before his final encounter with Pilate. Like a sheep before her shearers is silent, he opened not his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself 
to him who judges justly. In the likeness of his Savior, we see in meek Moses, a man who submits to God and allows for his vindication. Notice verse 2 says, And the Lord heard it. Friend, you do not need to worry when others malign you, attack your character, impugn your motives, or try to wreck your reputation, because the Lord hears it. And he will vindicate you, as we see in this example of the Lord's relation to Moses. In verse 4, the Lord rises suddenly, like a scorned yet self-controlled parent dealing with wayward children. He calls the siblings of Moses, Aaron, and Miriam together. We can only imagine Miriam and Aaron exchanging one of those glances towards one another. We're really going to get it now. As a trembling walk up to the cloud of the Lord's presence. God could have very well laid into them. Rather, the tone of the Lord is instructive. He wants to teach Miriam and Aaron a lesson. He informs these ignorant praise seekers that Moses is different. Yes, with many prophets, the Lord has revealed himself in visions and in dreams. Yet Moses is more than a prophet because God has made it so. God has chosen, and who are you to argue with God? But furthermore, Moses was faithful in all of my house, says the Lord. That's quite a compliment. It will be said of Samuel that he let none of the Lord's words fall to the ground. A man who handles the word of God must be faithful. And to Moses is given the privilege of Seeking God face to face. God would unveil his glory to Moses like no other man before him or after him. And God closes out this discussion with the two culprits with a question. So why were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? Of course, Miriam and Aaron have no answer. Any more than Job could answer the litany of the Lord's questions coming out of the whirlwind. Miriam and Aaron, shut up. Sometimes that's just the best thing to do. There is a time to raise legitimate questions. When we are concerned with the decisions and the activities of our leaders. But the manner in which we approach that leadership with our questions makes all the difference. If a leader is a scoundrel, by all means, we must keep him in check to the best we can. And yet, Scripture commands that we still submit to the authority that God has established. How much more, then, should we approach with great humility to a man under whose authority we are, who is a man of God? To approach a faithful pastor, a godly elder, even a secular leader who is a person of integrity, in a spirit of contempt, with the intention of arousing suspicion in the minds and the hearts of others, is a great offense. God will vindicate the man who serves him in leadership in the fear of God. In verse 9, It says that the anger of the Lord burns against Aaron and Miriam. 
Now, this phrase is actually very common in the scriptures. God is not shy to reveal that he is angry, to teach his people a lesson. And as often is the case, this expression is followed by an act of judgment. And of course, when the cloud is lifted, there stands Miriam, covered in leprosy. In our modern sensibilities, this may seem harsh. Is God being a bully? I would argue that rather this, though an act of judgment, is also an act of mercy. Because God is showing something to Miriam and the people. He wants to let them see on the outside what is true of them on the inside. He wants them to see just how corrupt and rotten and self-centered and proud we are in the depths of our hearts. With the word picture of leprosy. We need that every now and then. The Lord's chastening is good as we wrestle with our struggle in pride. Many of us are so convinced of our goodness that we are reluctant to ever admit any sin. We refuse to confess our sin, and we look at someone as though they have two heads, if they even suggest that there is sin in our lives. Friend, has God afflicted you? Are you wondering at this steady stream of trials that seem to be coming into your life like a deluge? Perhaps God is merely testing your faith to make it stronger. Or could it be that your pride is so strong that God needs to give you serious wake-up calls to force you to deal with the issues in your heart? God will humble you in your determination to live independently of him, to live presumptuous of his grace, in your judgmental attitude towards other people, and your insistence upon your own righteousness apart from Christ. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, and he will raise you up. Notice how finally the Lord orchestrates a reconciliation within this broken family. Aaron sees the leprosy inflicted upon his sister, and he immediately humbles himself and he begs the Lord and Moses for mercy. He confesses his own foolishness and he pleads for intercession. Miriam is speechless. That's good for her. But then there's Moses' reaction. He could have played the I'll teach you a lesson game. Serves her right. She got what she deserved. Let her rot for a while. And maybe if she's real nice, I'll intercede for her. But Moses does not do that. He does not even think of doing such a thing. Moses was not snickering behind the door as his older sister was getting a whooping. He is not rejoicing in his vindication at his sister's expense. He is not tarry or add to her misery. Rather, he echoes Aaron's plea 
by not once but twice asking the Lord to please heal his sister. The Lord answers his faithful servant Moses and yet deems it wise for Miriam to sit out for seven days. And so to teach both Miriam and Israel a lesson as they wait and consider the pride of their hearts and their need for humility. As is true in many lessons of Scripture, the Lord may deliver us, He may withhold His wrath, He may heal and forgive us, and yet still the consequences may remain. David was forgiven, and yet his household was a mess. Jacob's life was a disaster. The Lord healed it, forgave him, and yet his children were also rampant and errant. Abraham was forgiven, and yet his marriage bore the scars of unfaithfulness. A while back, our daughter had somehow we had spilt softened scrub on one of her shirts, and though we washed it, of course it came out of the wash with spots. The Lord knows how to clean us up real good. But sometimes we come out of the wash clean, and yet we have spots to remind us of our failings and weaknesses. Moses illustrates for us the proverbial principle of returning evil with good. In doing so, you will be heaping burning coals upon the head of your adversary. David will spare the life of Saul not once but twice even after his own men encouraged him to take the life of his enemy. Yet David is moved by compassion and by a deep trust in the vindication of God in the Lord's good timing. And it would be the Lord Jesus Christ who would turn down opportunity for vengeance, to not return his enemy's threats, Rather, he, in silence, would submit to the will of his Father to lay down his life as a substitutionary sacrifice for their sins. And in the process, he would pray, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. You and I, my friend, have reviled our Savior, and yet he showed us mercy. And we continue to betray our Savior with little betrayals every day. Yet he continues to intercede for us before the Father. The turning point for Edmund in the line in which in the wardrobe was not just the gracious response of his own siblings, but the humbling knowledge that Aslan, the high king, had laid down his own life as a substitute for him. The faithful one took the place of the traitor. Miriam was a traitor. Moses knew it. But he also knew the treachery of his own heart because he had been in the presence of a holy God. And he had seen all of God's glory and he was compelled by the message of God the one who is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, full of compassion. Moses was humbled in the presence of God. Who was he? 
that he should cast the first stone. Rather, he begged mercy for a fellow sinner. So, my friend, in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, go and do likewise.